Welcome to the Sugar Science Podcast, where our mission is to highlight and connect researchers in the type 1 diabetes space. I'm Monica Wesley, and joining me, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Jose Tirado Garcia. He uh, is a researcher at UVA, and we'll talk a little bit more about his bio. We also have joining us Alex Parrott, who's an intern for the Sugar Science and a biomedical engineering student at Virginia Tech. Welcome, both of you. Thank you, Monica, for having me today. So happy to have you. I just wanted to give a quick uh, introduction. Dr. Jose Garcia Torado received his PhD in 2014 from the Department of Process and Energy at Universidad Nacional de Colombia. And in 2014, he joined the Metropolitan Institute of Technology in Medellin, Colombia, as an assistant professor and head of the research group, Quality, Metrology, and Production. At the end of 2017, he joined the Center for Diabetes Technology, the CDT, at University of Virginia, UVA, as a research associate. And his research interests include systems identification, estimation theory, and most importantly to us, modeling of the glucose homeostasis. In his current work, he's devoted mainly to the individualization of behavior patterns, eating and exercise predominantly from the CGM, insulin pump, and activity trackers. So does that sum it up then, Jose? <laughs> that's, that's pretty much what I do. That's great. Well, can you talk to us about how you became scientifically interested in type 1 diabetes? Sure. Uh, my background is in control engineering, control theory. So I've made all bachelor, master's, and PhD degrees on that particular subject. My history at the very beginning, I thought it was very unique. Later on, I realized that it was more common than I thought. So basically, I was living in Germany in uh, 2014, uh, doing my first postdoc there at RBTH Aachen. I was working with the system, process system and, uh, intensification with very complex chemical and biochemical processes. And then um, on May, I got diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. So basically, I started this uh, tough journey on getting to know how was this new world for me. I'm quite sure you, you know what I'm talking about. Um, getting to know how intensive treatment was going to hit me in the following couple of months, and so on and so forth. Then um, I got to know a person who was uh, my diabetes educator there in, in Germany who told me something that keeps in my mind even today. She said, if you want to succeed in this disease, you get to be the best. You get to be one of the best in the world. You need to get to know more about the, your disease. You will manage yourself. Uh, not even the best endocrinologist will manage you as you could. So that is stuck in my mind. Then uh, I went back to Colombia. I got my professorship in my hometown and I started to study by myself the topic. I had a, an a amazing experience in one of com conference from one of retired best control engineers I have the pleasure to know, which is uh, Professor Gilwin Graham from Australia. He made this beautiful talk about artificial pancreas technology. And I said, oh my goodness, I can do this from my background. Yeah. So, <laughs> so that, was, that, was, that was amazing. The first thing I did was to gather main actors in my city, uh, clinicians and best engineers to get to know the topic to talk about the disease, to talk how could we possibly leverage our knowledge in the years to come. Yeah. That, that collaboration is still is, I mean, giving fruits today at these days. But then uh, I decided to, to move forward because 
Unfortunately, in, in our countries, in development, it is pretty hard to do quality research. So I decided to move to um, a top-tier university, and I had the chance to be accepted here at the University of Virginia. Well, that's quite a story. It's really interesting how you had already been working on something that really would come into play to manage your own health. It is interesting we've heard that people who have, you know, sort of this background can really do great things in the field. And I, uh, we've seen that. You have some really great papers we're going to talk about. Just generally, what are your thoughts about the work being done in systems analytics that uh, addresses type 1 diabetes? Is, is it a big place? You know, is a lot of work being done or do you feel like it's kind of a smaller space? No, I think it's a very nice and complete work it's being done from that from that perspective. I think as Lane Desborough uh, pointed out in one of your first podcasts, uh, beautifully, but uh, all the knowledge coming from systems engineering, uh, all the knowledge com- coming from a control theory are very welcome to this field. Yes, and that's what we are experiencing in in many groups, not not only at the University of Virginia, but the, uh, you name it. I mean, there are like many actors playing a key role on level on advancing that this technology. Yes, it does seem that it's growing. The field is growing, and there are a lot more systems engineers and that kind of thinking coming in to intersect sort of with the biology. So, which of course I think is fantastic, and we champion that. So let's talk about you and exactly what's going on. What's going on in your lab? Uh, a lot of things. So <laughs> basically, there was something going on before I, I joined the center. They managed to uh, made a huge progress on the first, let's say, commercial control algorithm from, from Tandem, which is now named as uh, Control IQ. Yeah. They, Boris, uh, Boris Kovachev, the head of the center, and my super, supervisor, Mark Redon, they managed to create the IDCL group, the International Diabetes Closed Loops effort to make that control IQ be like thoroughly tested and to end up in a pivotal trial, which led to the product that we know today in, in control IQ by Tandem. After, I may say, I joined the center and I started like a new branch of uh, advanced control systems because Control IQ was more an heuristical controller trying to put together ideas from an expert endocrinologist. In this case, I, I formalized the notions from control engineering to bring together what we call advanced controllers. Mm-hmm. From my perspective, I've been participated in two nice clinical trials. We are designing a couple more, trying to create the next generation of artificial pancreas, trying to draw a further line in, in that regard. On the other hand, we have uh, a vast experience on decision support systems. Now we are leveraging two major agreements with uh, Novo, Nordisk, and uh, Dexcom. We signed a five-year agreement with with them in two different, let's say, uh, topics. In one of them, we are trying to leverage our our expertise and modeling to make uh, virtual scenarios for type 2, which is somehow uh, unexplored. Yes. On the other hand, with Dexcom, uh, we are trying to generate the next generation of artificial pancreas systems and trying to test the CGM technology out of the type 1 diabetes like more into the clinic, more into type 2 or gestational diabetes, trying to bring that 
technology out of type 1 diabetes and try to broaden the spectrum of possibilities. Yeah. And I think that there's, you know, some might say, oh, well, we should really focus on type one. But I do think that bringing the technology out of just type one and applying it to other disease states and people without any disease states might bring a lot of data that could add back and sort of give uh, more information ultimately towards type one diabetes. What is your thought on that? I totally agree. A couple of things to make that point clearer. Type 1 diabetes is just around 5% of total diabetes patients in, in the world. That's according to the International Diabetes Federation and many other organisms. The point is in type 1 diabetes, we have a lack of insulin. So the patients need insulin to survive. And we have studied more that problem from the control engineering problem. On the other hand, type 2, it's a way more complex disease because it it encompasses uh, like different levels of insulin resistance and uh, many metabolic disorders that we haven't digested in the way we have uh, with type 1 diabetes. So the challenges are far more complex, uh, if I might say, but we have the knowledge that we gained from type 1 diabetes. And I think we are ready to move forward to get type 2 diabetes on the loop. Not every type 2 patient will fit in this type of treatment, let's say, but certainly some of the complex insulin-needing subjects or patients will benefit for sure from this technology. Yeah. And then since they're a much larger group, you know, there's bound to be data and information that's gleaned from that trial, I guess you want to call it, that can maybe you know, be applied back towards type one itself. So I think that more data is probably better, right? In this uh, circumstance. Yeah, exactly. Uh, One of the dreams from our head director, Boris Kovacev, is to reach a virtual twin from the subject. So if you have like tons of data and you're able to tailor a model from a given patient, you can play with that virtual patient instead of trying different strategies with the real person. Yeah. So that's a dream that I think in the following years will become true. Well, this brings me right to your paper that came out in August 2020 in Science Direct, mapping data to virtual patients in type 1 diabetes. And some of the takeaways are a personalization of the UVA Padova type 1 diabetes model using field collected data. The second thing was most impacting parameters are determined via practical identifiability analysis, which would be great to talk about. Changes in insulin sensitivity are expressed as a truncated Fourier series. And then the methodology is evaluated with synthetic and real data. And this UVA Padova simulator is equipped with a new variability library. Can you walk us through that? What is this all, you know, boil it down for us? Sure, sure. Um, So some of the listeners might not know that the the UVA Padova simulator is a joint venture from the University of Padova and University of Virginia. And that was uh, accepted by the FDA uh, around 2007 or to replace clinical trials on animals. So basically, mm-hmm. we in this field don't use clinical trials on animals. Yeah. We some sort of uh, circumvent that uh, by using our simulator. So the FDA accept like a vast simulation testing of our algorithms before going to a real clinical trial. That particular model is our benchmark model, like it's very well known around the world. And it has been identified 
from complex experiments involving triple tracers and some sort of complex experimentation. We cannot do that to every single subject. So if we would like to tailor that particular model to represent or to, to describe the particular dynamics from a given subject, we will need to repeat all those tests and experiments that no insurance will cover at all. So basically, this model has a, an additional challenge from the engineering perspective that is pretty difficult to individualize. What, what you call identification is basically what we call in this field individualization. Mm -hmm. So basically try to manipulate the parameters of a model in order to get that model to represent a given subject. Yeah. So what we have made is, okay, we just have CGM data and insulin pump data. Let's try to make a procedure that is known in our field that is called the convolution. Like in a plain explanation, it will be like I inject CGM and insulin data to, into that model, and that model will give me the source of variability that I see from the CGM. Okay. So basically, having that source of variability, I can characterize a given subject. And that's how that beautiful research path led by my colleague, Patricia Colmena, led to what we, we call now the virtual or digital twin that needs to be further explored. But like, like our initial results suggest that we can accomplish that in the near future. That sounds very exciting. And I know you're looking closely at, you know, trying to control or trying to help people with type 1 prevent hypoglycemia after exercise as well. And you had a paper that came out in J Process Control in 2019 that really explored that. So once you sort of drill down on these patterns of variability, can you overlay sort of exercise sensitivity for individuals on these or is that not a doable thing? Well, more than that, part of the, of the work we're, we're intensively doing this year is trying to characterize the major disturbances for a person with type 1 diabetes. That is behavior, basically. Mm -hmm. Behavior from two major disturbances, which are meals and exercise. Yeah. We have like many problems, many technological problems. One of them is uh, when we read a CGM value, we are reading a late measurement of blood glucose. Yes. So that measurement happened 15, 20 minutes ago or before. So basically we are working with past values. And on top of that, when we are going to inject insulin, when we're going to actuate on that subject, that insulin will take on average 15 to 20 minutes to start acting on that person. So we have worst nightmares from the control <laughs> engineering perspective, which are delays on the measurement and delays on the actuator. Yeah. That difficult and hampers a lot because, for instance, uh, Professor Riddell from Toronto, he had demonstrated a lot of times that it is not enough that you cut off insulin when you start exercising. You will go hypo. Mm -hmm. uh, basically, because uh, you have insulin on board and that insulin on board will contribute to that ongoing hypoglycemia. Basically, he had demonstrated that you need either to cut off insulin like 90 minutes before the onset of the exercise or to consume additional fast-acting carbs. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't want that in a person with type 1 diabetes. We, we don't have a person to be correcting himself or, or herself with additional carbs. We would like to act on a more prospective way. What we did was to characterize the exercise behavior of a, of a person 
to build what we call digital signatures of the behavior of the person with respect to the exercise. And that information will be fed to the controller. So the controller will expect something in the future. So our controllers are uh, designed in a technology that we call model predictive control. And that technology allows us to embed a mathematical model of the user and to feed those a priori known disturbances. So for instance, if Monica used to exercise every night or every afternoon from four to seven, the controller will pay attention to that time window, expecting a major glucose drop. So it will be more careful to infuse insulin. And that we um, demonstrated in a small clinical trial, it was a more a reliability, feasibility, safety clinical trial that informing a priori that controller, we significantly reduced the number of hypoglycemias happening during and after um, active, like uh, moderate intensity activity. Yeah, so if you can proactively sort of preempt then you're, you know, you you really can have a change in, in outcome. Exactly, exactly. So basically, if we get to mine the prior data, the prior information from the user, we can get to know the behavior. We can get to know what time that person used to eat, that person used to exercise, and we can proactively act and train our controller to expect that behavior, to expect that disturbance. Hypothetically, could you get these data from like an Apple Watch or something like that and, and wet it to a CGM or to your pump? That's uh, perhaps a different uh, approach. If, if you ask me if you can get that information from your Apple Watch, uh, that meaning that the CGM and pump are communicating to the Apple Watch. Yeah, try that, it. That's something that Apple is trying already. As far as I know, uh, newer versions of the Apple Watch will include CGM from, from Dexcom. But you can also leverage the accelerometry, accelerometry technology from, from that Apple Watch or from a different activity tracker mm -hmm. to inform the controller when you are eating. And that's yeah. perhaps something that a company called Clue that was recently acquired by, by Medtronic is trying to do. Is basically trying to uh, recognize when the person is eating based on the movement of his hand. But that, that's a different approach. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, that's very interesting. What do you think? I mean, just sort of, again, hypothetically, what is the timeline for these kinds of technologies coming to market? Oh, that's tough. Um, that's tough because that not only depended on the, on the level of readiness, the technological readiness, of the product, but from economical factors and the willingness from the major companies to take that product into, into the market. Yeah, they but have to understand the, you know, also will the insurance uh, companies pay, correct? Exactly. I mean, mm -hmm. nowadays you have two uh, major players with commercial artificial banking system in the United States. You have Medtronics and you have Tandem. If you get to dig into their systems. Their systems are control systems that were used in the 60s and 70s in other fields. So we are advancing, uh, not at the pace other fields are doing, but yeah, we have a lot of hurdles. We have uh, the FDA watching and monitoring that whatever thing we do, it's safe, which is in my perspective is healthy. And we have uh, major companies watching the market. But that's also a major key idea to, to bring up. 
In in terms of what's going, that's what's going on in the states. How about in Europe? Are they also sort of progressing at the same rate? Would you say? Well, in Europe, is uh, more diverse. They might not have like the research. If you compare Europe and United States, you get to know that the, the money invested in the United States is a higher amount per per year. However, they currently have two systems in place, as, as far as I know, which are the Howorkas system and the Diave Loop system that uh, a French spin-off company that made it through the commercialization. Yeah, so it's a little more diverse over in Europe. Well, it'll be exactly. very interesting to see how these things scale. And I mean, if if someone is a young researcher, they have sort of a, a technology or some kind of a new idea in this space, you know, how, how can industry best partner with the, the scientists to, you know, scale their idea? Oh, that's, a, that's a very, very good question. So for instance, clinical trials are hugely among the expense. So this is, in my opinion, the bottleneck of, uh, of the development. That's why that you might see people tilting toward the do-it-yourself movement because they are trying to do their best with the resources they have. Yeah. The problem with that is you cannot get acknowledgement from the regulatory perspective. The regulatory agencies will not see you in the way they see the research that has been done through the usual pipeline. So in, in my opinion, the, co- the big companies should like uh, filter better and try to get to know different ideas out there before taking a product into a clinical trial. So that's that's uh, some sort of opportunity that I see. Somehow you encounter problems of licensing and problems of author rights that should be addressed. But uh, at the end of the day, the companies and the major universities will have the word they say uh, in that regard. Yeah, you really have to align yourself Exactly. The system. And I know CPATH is doing some great work in terms of helping young scientists and others design clinical trials so that they will succeed, which is helpful. Okay, well, this, uh, this is so interesting. And now I'd like to actually have Alex sort of, you know, as a student, ask a few questions. He's got a couple of questions. So go for it, Alex. Hey, thank you. You've highlighted on a few of my questions, but your work that you've done with the exercise informed closed loop system and the rocket AP that can be de- that can detect when a meal has been eaten has improved the lives of a lot of diabetics. But um, how do these systems account for individualistic factors like when insulin resistance or scar tissue development around common injection site locations that might affect how it delivers and reads and actually works as a whole? Well, that's a, that's a pretty interesting question because that's more related to the real world. Uh, functioning of the systems. Uh, we, when we design a clinical trial, we design a very controlled environment when we can like test our systems for the first time. Then we move on and go for like a bigger clinical trial when we can either test like longer times or we can we can test at home usage of the, of the system of the, of the technology and we. In that part of the study, we can assess all those things because usually, for instance, there are uh, technological problems that are not directly related to the uh, AP system itself, like uh, the time the CGM lasts in a given subject. Uh, recently, in, in January, we had the opportunity to have an adolescent camp when we were 
testing our rocket AP. And some of them, CGM lasted for three days. Uh, and, and we are talking about the on average, $100 sensor that is just peeled off in three days. And you have problems of those who were, you were mentioning before, like the like the insertion sites or occlusion, or like that. those are real life problems that we for sure in a pivotal trial, we need to assess better. But that, that will be something that is more ready to be launched into the market. Right. That's interesting. And then for the exercise informed closed loop system, you talk about how you're able to predict when you're working out if you're on a more structured schedule. But say somebody might have more physical activity, like on certain days, is it able to kind of account for more sporadic moments of exercise? Like if they're on a commute or doing different things as opposed to a more stagnant lifestyle they may have? Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a very good question. Well, basically, what we had tried to do with the, we collected 30 days of data. That data included CGM and insulin pump as usual, but that data included Fitbit activity tracker data that helped us to construct the exercise patterns. What we have tested in the clinical trial is that we have two days. In one day, we asked the, the subjects to exercise in the, in the time where they used to exercise. And the next day, we try, we asked them to be still during the time the controller was expecting exercise. In both cases, the controller was able to back off uh, correctly because for instance, when the person was going to exercise, the controller back, backed off insulin and prevented the, the hypoglycemia to, to occur. On the other hand, uh, next day, the controller backed off, but when it realized there was no exercise, it pushed insulin because it said, okay, I know this person is likely to exercise, but I cannot let that person to go beyond some threshold. I mean, ideally, it will be it will not be 120 milligrams per deciliter as the current usual target, but I will not let this person to be hyperglycemic. So that's some sort of trade-offs that we need to manage in those cases. But that's true. That's true. We need to be prepared. Um, there could be a case that you are going to exercise but you cannot because something popped up and you can you just cannot say, hey, controller, I'm not going to exercise. Because the thing, the major dream we have is to, to lift the burden that the person with diabetes has. That's really, really interesting and really impressive that it's able to tell the difference and actively adjust itself. So then for the Rocket AP, where it's kind of guessing where you're going to eat, is it the same type of system? Because obviously you're going to spike after you eat. And if it thinks you'll eat and you don't, that can obviously affect it. And by then it's too late. That's, a, that, that's also a very nice, very nice question uh, because we, prior to the design of Rocket, we tried to test several ideas. One of them was trying to recognize meals when they were happening to try to act upon on that uh, like detection. Literature... Reviews show that best meal detectors detect meals on average 40 minutes after the onset of the meal. And that's late. When you would like to act, that's already late. So you're not going to avoid the big bump, the big hyperglycemia bump. Our first approach with Rocket was to design what we call a bolus priming system. So basically we train what we call regressors on curves that are like um, 
meal patterns. So basically, when CGM start to grow up, um, you can say that a meal it's kind of progressing. We are not 100% sure, but you can tell that something is happening. So basically, what we what we do is to create a probability function that is gaining confidence as time goes on. That uh, help us, for instance, 10 minutes after the meal started, we say, hey, something's happening here. Perhaps we're not in the position to say it is a meal, but it seems to be a meal in development. So what we do is to inject pieces of that bolus instead of the big, huge bolus, because that, what, that will not be safe in case there is a problem with the CGM. Um, so basically the bolus priming system will start dosing like fractions of the TDI of the total daily insulin until we have uh, like a high probability of a meal being detected. And that has proven to be pretty nice in, in, in practice in, in the rocket camp. We're still analyzing the data, but our first analysis suggested that the, the BPS system worked. And on top of that, we're going to pair that bolus priming system with our anticipatory controller. So basically, we're going to fuse what we have found in, in the exercise clinical trial, basically saying, okay, we recognize the pattern, the meal pattern of that subject, and when we're going to merge that anticipativity with the bolus priming system. So the point is, if we have confidence that that person is going to eat at a certain time, we're going to start infusing small doses of insulin to let that person know be in 120 milligrams per deciliter, but perhaps to be ready at 100 or 90 milligrams per deciliter without risking that person to be in hypo. So in that way, that person is kind of insulinized enough to tackle the, the postprandial peak, which uh, will be tackled by the bolus priming system. So our aim will be to assess in the clinical trial to be in May, if that uh, pairing will succeed or not. And after that, we're going to test insulin that is in, it's developed by a company in UK and it's proved uh, an ultra fast action, uh, even faster than the, than the Fiasco. So basically our next step will be, okay, we have the anticipation, we have the bolus framing system. What if we have a ultra fast insulin analog that will help us to reduce that delay that we have in the insulin action? So the, you're able to increment it with the uh, priming system and as it builds more confidence, it then is able to just make a better decision with everything that comes into play while you're actually eating. Exactly. And if for instance, we, we're gaining confidence, we're like a, 40% of confidence, but at some point that confidence is starting to go down. So the system will not infuse more insulin because that probability started to vanish for some reason. And, and I can think of the down phenomenon, for instance, in the middle of the night, when you start to build up glucose and it's not necessarily related to a meal. It's just a metabolic uh, phenomenon. That's, that's really interesting. And that's really impressive. It's exciting to hear about those developments and for all the work that you've done what was your spark in like to help you come up with the strategies to make these systems effectively accomplish the goal that you designed them to do? Well, needless to say, um, this is a team effort. I'm not, I'm not the only person behind the scenes. Uh, we have a tremendous team dedicated to work together uh, to the same objective. 
So that's part of, of the success. Uh, the other reason I, I, I attribute to the success of, of these designs is that we have a very well-established group with a, a lot of experience, perhaps one of the unique groups in the world that pair the clinical practice with engineering. So that for sure allowed us to have very nice conversations between medical doctors and engineering doctors. Uh, they they don't let us to make stupid decisions. They don't make they don't let us to make like crazy designs. Basically, because we are always thinking on safety. Yeah, we've got a real uh, a, a real life interface with the clinic, right? Exactly. So it's really a, a, yeah. an excellent space to be. Exactly. Uh, that that happened. That I've seen with some of my colleagues that I want to bring up again a phrase that stuck in my mind from Lane Desborough that some people design NASCAR cars uh, as artificial pancreas systems because they just build humongous, uh, very complicated systems that will act in a very controlled environment, but that will not work in a real environment. So basically, uh, we just, when we have a physician in our group, there is something called credibility. If they are not comfortable to applying that technology to a patient, they will, they will not let you. And that's a key part of the process, in my opinion. Yeah, the real world experience is uh, really makes it, it, it makes it easier and harder. <laughs> in some exactly. It's, it's very challenging because you, can, you may come up with a very nice idea, top-notch idea that you saw in uh, the last conference you attended. But then it might, it might sound crazy. That might sound too risky to be deployed in a clinical trial. So you need to think it twice. Yeah. Well, Jose, we really have appreciated speaking with you today. You have so much to offer in terms of your experience, personal and scientific. And um, we thank you what, uh, for all you're doing in this uh, line of work. It's a very detailed and complex work. And uh, you seem to bring a lot of enthusiasm and I'd say optimism to it. So we're really excited to see what you do next. And thank you again for talking to us. No, thank you, Monica, too, for having me. Thanks, uh, Alex, for, for the questions, for the interest. And anytime, you just shoot me an email and we, we can talk. Yes, sir. Thank you. Okay. All right. Have a great rest of the day. 